If you will, open your Bibles uh, for the last time uh, in this particular series to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, we're going to be looking at the entirety of the chapter. 2 Peter chapter 3, begin, beginning in verse 1. Uh, this is the fourth and final sermon from uh, Peter's very uh, brief epistle. Most of you are aware uh, that uh, I grew up in the golden age of pop music, uh, the 1970s. Um, I would say you should still listen to 1970s music, but if you have any clothing left over from that same decade, don't even give it to Goodwill, just burn it. Uh, we had a great ear for music, but a terrible eye uh, for fashion. During that same decade, really before the youth of that time caught Saturday night fever, the church had caught apocalyptic fever. That is, it was the normal, normal content of at least one sermon per week to be warned in regards to the eminence of the soon approaching rapture of the church, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in and of itself, that's not a bad thing. That day is sure to come. And because of that which Christ has done for us, we need not fear it. But during that time frame, continuing upon the foundation laid by a man by the name of J.N. Darby, you've probably never heard of him, you have heard of D.L. Moody, you have heard of C.I. Schofield, Schofield Reference Bible. Probably most of us here have owned one. At least we've all seen that particular type of reference Bible. Even popularized by none other than Billy Graham, there was a form of premillennialism called premillennial dispensational pre-tribulational rapture theology that gained a great foothold in the Southern Baptist Church in particular, okay? And again, my favorite preacher, John MacArthur, pretty much holds to most of the tenets uh, that was espoused there. But in the early 70s, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary by the name of Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. That book sold 30 million copies. Now, by anybody's estimation... 30 million copies is a lot of books, okay? It was a runaway bestseller, okay? And Lindsay and those that followed him, such as Tim Left Behind LaHaye, built upon a technique of taking their Bibles in one hand and their newspaper or Newsweek magazine or Time magazine, and very quickly discerning that this that is happening over there is that which was predicted in here. And it was, uh, and, and probably this goes back a little further, but there was always rampant speculation about the identity 
of the Antichrist. And the technology and all of the ramifications of what is mentioned as the mark of the beast. And so, churches were just uh, foaming at the mouth with all of this. Uh, there was a movie, and I, w- I would just be interested. How many of you have seen A Thief in the Night? Okay. Not many. Huh. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. It's a very old movie, so we're not a very old church, so I guess that's the reason. But again, the idea of those that have been left behind at the rapture of the church. Now, as you know, growing up in the 70s and being converted in the early 1970s, imagine this. I began to read my Bible. It's kind of a strange thing for a new believer to do, isn't it? Not. Okay. But I was hearing all of this, and listen, I had many, many questions. I, I just, I, you know, you've heard me talk about just some of the craziness in the church that I grew up in. And so, didn't know who to ask the questions to. And had I, I would have gotten a variety of different answers to any of the questions that I would have asked. But one of the questions that I asked fairly early on where's this rapture thing? Where, where, where is it? How, how? And then I found it. It's there, okay? And listen, and I know one of the vicious rumors that was started about me early on was Tim doesn't believe in the rapture. That is a lie. I do believe in the rapture. Absolutely. It's right there in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, 1 Corinthians 15, okay? What I question is whether we should expect for the church to be removed by some type of secret or secretive return of Christ before the onset of what is often referred to as the Great Tribulation. Uh, That's where I have serious questions. Now, again, if it happens, please let me know because I want to go, okay? If, If you're snatched, grab me on the way out, please. And so it's, it's really not my point to tease out all the issues related to eschatology. And it is interesting that in the early years of the Christian church, there were a great number of what's called ecumenical councils that really dug deeply into the truth of the Word of God to define very precisely things such as the Trinity and the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the the two natures in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things were very precisely nailed down and even confessions written to help us understand with clarity and state with clarity the biblical truth in regards to these things. None of these councils ever sat down and laid out a precise eschatology. This is the way it's all going to end. And so uh, the church has kind of floundered in that, and there are various views, as you well know, as to how all things will end. And I'm not quite a pan-millennialist. Those of you that remember Bob Shipp, that was kind of one of his little phrases, that he was a pan-millennialist, all pan out in the end. But there is... And he's right. That is true, okay? That's absolutely true. Um, But um, I'm I'm really on board, 
and not many things I'm really on board with that, you know, kind of the corporate world of Southern Baptists do, but our Baptist faith and message says something along the lines of God will bring all things to their appropriate end at the appropriate time. And I believe that. He will bring things to their appropriate end at the appropriate time. That does not mean we shouldn't study and ask questions and challenge one another. We should. And this reality of a coming and approaching day of the Lord should be something that believers do think about. Okay? They should be preparing for. They should be living in eager anticipation of this day. They should understand the implications of all that's involved with this day. And so as we look at this, I would discourage a a lot of uh, vain speculation. But I would encourage that we examine ourselves daily to see if indeed we are prepared that we're living as God commands us to live with a view toward a day in which all, all will give an account. And remember this, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We who know Christ will do it with joy. And those who don't, will be forced to make that great confession just before they hear, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Read with me, if you will. Now, this this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because 
of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the era of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your testimony to yourself, given for our good, given for your glory, given that we may know you, given that we may live with confidence and even calmness in days that indeed are challenging. Lord, give us understanding so that we may know you and know the power of your gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have seen that in chapter 1, Peter speaks very plainly to us regarding the certainty of our salvation, that that we are to be diligent about all things pertaining to the reality of God's work of grace in our lives, and that we are to have very deep and abiding convictions in regards to the truthfulness, the certainty of the Word of God. We should have clarity in discerning truth from error. Here in chapter 3, as he concludes this letter and begins to offer some practical admonition in terms of the great realities of that which is to come, he exhorts us to confidence in view of our Lord's return. A confidence that is uh, mixed appropriately with humility, in that I admit to you and I submit to you, I don't have it all figured out, okay? I, I, I really don't. Uh, there, there are uh, most things I, I'm quite confident about when it comes to Scripture and teaching you uh, the great truths of the Word of God, but there are some things that uh, if God decides to perfect my theology in this life, I will be greatly appreciative, but there is some expectation that as perfect as I think my theology is, a little chuckle please, as perfect as I think it is, it really will not be perfected until I see the one in whom is perfected, the perfect one, the Son of God, who will indeed bring all things to their appropriate end in the appropriate time. Of that, of that, I am and you should be absolutely and perfectly clear. Listen, the details are in his hands. They're not in my hands. They're in his hands. 
whose hands would you rather all providence, all time, all places, all kings, into whose hands would you rather entrust these things? We can trust him even in these matters. So we look here and we see in verse 1, a bit of an exhortation to these particular addressees, reminding us that this is the second of the two letters that he is uh, writing to you. Now, this you is going to get kind of important here in just a minute. Just kind of remember that, okay? He's writing to you, to those he's identified way back in chapter 1, in verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing, those who are standing in the grace of God, those who are secure in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have peace with God, who have been made just by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the you to whom he writes this letter. And it stands really in contrast, look back to verse 22 of chapter 2. It stands in specific contrast to those that he will later call scoffers, but previously has compared to dogs and sow, as those that will act out in according to their nature. Okay, and we spent some time on that a couple of, of weeks back. And so he's writing to these specific believers, the beloved, and he's writing for the purpose of stirring them up. I like Peter. It's kind of like what I've, you remember what I've always said? You know, I remember when I started teaching, I said, listen, my only goal is to make you mad. That's what I'm here to do. I, that's all I'm here to do is just make you mad. And again, that was a smart-alecky way of saying, I want you to think. I want you to think. I, in fact, there's, there's a, a way in which you need to think so critically that when I preach, you can think, you know, I want to go home and look at that. I'm going to open my Bible, and I want to look at that in more detail and be sure that I'm rightly divided. That, that, that would be a good thing for you to do. So Peter says, I'm going to stir you up in your sincere mind by reminding you, by reminding you of these great truths, these predictions that some have been fulfilled in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that would be some of the Old Testament prophecies find their fulfillment in the incarnation and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of them await fulfilling and still in our future. But he wants to remind that. And that's the second time he's used, used that word. And, so, you know, again, I remember some of the early criticisms, you know, besides preaching too long, which is still a criticism. But, you know, it's too hard, it's over my head, it's too deep, stuff like that. Let me tell you something. I preach the same things that I begin to struggle with as a 15-year-old new convert. There's nothing really difficult about this stuff, okay? It is things that we constantly need to go back to and we need to look at and we need to think hard about. And if you have a regenerate heart, you have, you've been illuminated by the Word of God, these things should at least prompt your curiosity. You may not have all your tent flaps nailed down, but you're at least interested enough to examine, to study, to look into, to quiz, and question. And so he wants to stir up and his, his methodology is by reminding them of the truths that they have already uh, come to know that they take this right knowledge, this, this 
right and truthful information and all of this, having the right knowledge, having the right information, being convicted of the right things is absolutely essential. It is absolutely intrinsic if we would live a life that is pleasing to God and even pleasing to ourselves. Do you think the moral reprobates of our day are actually pleased with their reprobation? You think they're really happy to be in the state they're in. Only the believer has the possibility of living a life characterized by flourishing, by present joy. And so we seek to remind you, to, to stir you up, that you remember these things. You know, in the realm of athletics and competitive sports, pressure does some really strange things to athletes. Whether it's the pressure of the game in general, the big game, or whether it's a 350-pound defensive tackle standing in the face of a quarterback, and he faces the immediate pressure to get rid of the football. And here's what happens. And you hear the announcers say this all the time. He overthrew his receiver. Why? Because his mechanics fell apart under pressure. Now, that, that, that applies in golf. That applies in baseball as my Atlanta Braves folded up like a cheap lawn care, chair this week, and I'm devastated, but that's okay. I'm going to be okay. But people fold up under pressure. The pressure of life. The pressure of grief. And I don't do this universally but it's pretty common, probably two-thirds of the funerals I do, maybe even more than that. I did it Thursday at the graveside of Mary and Moses. I read 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I would not have you be ignorant, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. Under the pressure of the moment, the loss of one that you love, there is some information that you need to remember, that you need to take hold of, that you need to believe, that you need to let soak deeply into your souls and permeate your brains so that you remember that we know that the grave does not have the final say on those that we love who are in Christ. Sometimes we forget that, and that's why we can grieve, and we do, Oh, but we grieve with hope, don't we? We grieve with hope. So he wants to remind them of these things. But those that won't be reminded, he makes this accusation beginning in verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. Now, I think all of you know that the last days began probably appropriately with the incarnation, certainly with the day of Pentecost. Okay, But we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Okay, And so he says in this time frame, loosely called the last days, they're going to be scoffers, and they're going to ridicule the believer because of their convictions regarding the day of the Lord and how we live in view of the day of the Lord. If Listen, now, the, 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 more, the current moral reprobates of our day, they may have little concept of what we're talking about when we talk about the return of Christ, the day of the Lord, all of, all, all of those things, okay? 
But what they scoff at the idea of transcendent truth, of ultimate truth, of a God who will hold them accountable, they scoff at that, they ridicule that, so they can live their autonomous lives and do that which they are pleased to do. They have to scoff. They have to, they have to deal with the reality of our conscience some way, and one of the best ways to do it is just ridicule people who believe in the absolute truthfulness of the Word of God and are committed and convinced that they will stand and give an account. And folks, we will. We will stand and give an account. And so it's interesting here that it seems like Peter has in view a group that's scoffing about the whole concept of the return of Christ, the concept of the day of the Lord. And I'll, I'll flesh out just to remind you in a minute what the day of the Lord is. But again, uh, the day of Christ's return, a day to deliver his people, a day to judge his enemies. We'll just say it simply at that for, for right now. But they're scoffing and say, wait a minute. Time keeps on, the calendar keeps flipping. What, 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 yeah, what are y'all talking about? Listen, if he was going to return, he would have returned, blah, blah, blah. And it's interesting that Paul has another group in mind in Thessalonians 2. Do you remember what he says? I don't want you, brethren, to be disturbed by some report that claims to have come from me that the day of the Lord has already come. So there were two groups. They were saying the day of the Lord has already come, and another group saying it ain't coming at all. But they were both scoffing at this reality, okay? And so, these scoffers ridicule because what? They're following their own sinful desires. They're debased. They're debauched. They're depraved. But they have to have some apologetic for acting like that. They have to have, you know, they can't just stand up and say, yeah, I'm an idiot. You know, I mean, I'm sorry. If you're living like that, that's really the bottom line. You're, you're destroying your life in the present, and you're securing for yourself the condemnation of God in the future. I don't, I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, that's just the way it is. And, and so they are slaves to this depravity. And, and, and make no mistake about it, Paul says in Romans 8, that those that live according to their sinful nature, that those that live according to the dictates of their sinful nature, those that are slaves to this corrupt nature, can not. They do not have the ability to please God. We'll talk more about that in coming weeks. I'll just leave that with you. But they can't. They don't have any desire to. They don't want to. But they can't because they're corrupted by their own greed, by, 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 by their own sinful disposition. And so we see this. They're following their sinful desires, and they keep asking this question, you know, when, when's he coming? Uh, th th we've been saying this for years, but yet he hasn't come as of yet. They, they ask these questions, you know, when will he come? Will he come? Why hasn't he come? What will it look like? All of these things intending to ridicule the concept that we believe that the Jesus who died on the cross for our sins was raised from the dead on the third day, who has ascended to the Father. And please hear me when I say this. He's ascended to the Father not only to intercede for us, which he does, and you better be thankful he does, 
Amen. And he rules and reigns. He is the Lord of lords, and he is the King of kings. Right now, right at this moment, the hands of every king are in the hands of the Lord, and he turns them as he determines they should be turned. It's a terrible thing what's happened in Israel. And of course, since it's Israel, I'm sure there'll be a a new outbreak of apocalyptic fever, okay? And we'll have John Hagee probably on TV today. Here's the headline from the Jerusalem Gazette. There it is right there. That's Ezekiel chapter, you know, telling you that that is this. Be careful of those guys. Be careful, okay? Um, Hal Lindsey famously said in his follow-up to Late Great Planet Earth that Jesus had to return by 1988, uh, I believe it was. You know why? Because Israel was reestablished in 1948, and Jesus said, this generation shall not pass away till all these things uh, are fulfilled. And so he said that what it was was the regathering of Israel. Well, he, he was wrong. Or you've been left behind. Take your pick. Y'all were listening. There was actually a song that went with the movie, A Thief in the Night. Kind of catchy, too. Okay, so they deliberately overlooked this fact. They intentionally. I think this kind of is a parallel to those that suppress the knowledge of the truth in their unrighteousness. They, they are willfully ignorant of the truth because they do not want to be accountable. You know, I've found this in, in the workplace sometimes, in, uh, at times, and those of you that manage people are particularly aware of this. There are people that you will work with that do not want to learn how to do anything. They do not want to acquire a, a new skill because they will be accountable for performing with excellence that new skill, and they do not want to be accountable for doing that. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Some of you nod your head. You know what I'm talking about. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And and so they deliberately just, you know, they just tune you out when you're trying to instruct them. Now, that doesn't apply to me. I don't care anything about computers. I just want them to work. If they don't work, I stomp, snort, and, you know, the whole nine yards. And I ain't going to learn no more than I have to to make them work. But I'm I'm the exception to that rule, okay? They're just a tool, like a hammer and a screwdriver. I just want them to work right. So... They are overlooking the realities of what God has done in the past, in creation, and in judgment. And God, in this day, he is awaiting that moment, known only to him, when he shall exact his judgment. And notice here, look at verse uh, 7. In that judgment, he's going to destroy the ungodly. Now, that's not uh, annihilation. That is conscious, real torturous punishment in hell forever for the ungodly. Well, let's look at uh, the explanation there in uh, verse 8. Don't overlook this fact. God exists. He is the creator of time, and he really exists outside of time, and he doesn't think about time like you think about time. How many of you think 30 minutes is a long time? Anybody? Let me put you in a car with four screaming kids that are thirsty and hungry and need to go to the potty and send you across town in rush hour traffic, and we'll see how long 30 minutes is. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, in one sense, my 30-minute nap on Sunday afternoon ain't very long. Okay? But there's some 30 minutes that go on forever, don't they? Yeah. And, and, and that's just, again, if it's possible for us to perceive time in differing ways, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's almost Halloween or Reformation Day, more appropriately stated. Yeah. I mean, that means we're moving toward Christmas. Did, didn't we just get the tree down last week? I mean, it's just crazy. I'm of that age where it is flying. Time flies. Okay? So, God does not look at time like you look at time. Okay? And it's his time. It's his creation. And he will manage it just like he wants to manage it. Okay? Because he's in charge. So, this patience, though, this time has a purpose. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He's not ignorant. He is is not just uh, neglectful of these things. His inactivity, so it seems, and again, he's not inactive. He is ruling and reigning. He's storing up wrath. He is providentially providing for his people. He is using his people to proclaim his gospel. He is glorifying himself in the perseverance and the proclamation of his people. All of this is very intentional, okay? And so, he is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's a bit of a bugaboo verse, I'll just tell you. Particularly for those like me who believe the doctrine of sovereign election, that God has chosen in eternity past, those whom he will save. Well, how, how do you, wait a minute, wait a minute. He says, he's not willing that any should perish. And you, you've got four moving parts in the text. What does it mean that God is not willing, or what, what, how do we deal with the will of God? And then, who is the you, the any, and the all? Now, I have taught, and I still believe this, okay? Please don't, I haven't changed my mind. That it is appropriate to think of the will of God having multiple dimensions, or at least two dimensions. Now, and all theologians do this. Sometimes they'll speak of his stated or revealed will and his secret will, okay? That which he causes to come about and that which he states will be his desire for these things to come out. Just think of it in terms of his law. You shall not lie, but yet people lie. Is it against the will of God? I would say yes, it's against the will of God for people to lie. But he allows people to lie. And in fact, the interesting thing is that this despicable act the greatest sin in human history, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, those that crucified him lied about him, they stole his stuff, and then they murdered him, okay? According, Peter said, to God's set purpose and foreknowledge, that it was God's will to bruise the one upon whom they looked. 
Again, multiple ways that God would will. Now, the word willing here is the Greek boulomos, which tends to be used of a stronger type of will, of the will of decree, the will that God will cause, or in this case, not cause, okay? Because there's negation. He's not willing, okay? So who is he not willing to perish? Who is the you he's patient with? And I have to give some credit to Joan Dumas because I've, I've, I've taught the passage multiple times over the years. I think this may be the first time I've taught the book. But it seems to me that Peter is emphatically calling his, our attention to the fact that the use that he's speaking of is the beloved in the church, that he is not willing for those that God has saved, God, those God has chosen to perish. The you is the elect. The you is the people of church. Now remember what I said. God desires that all men come to Christ. All men come to repentance, come to the saving knowledge. That's a stated will of God, okay? It's there. And it's true. He, uh, uh, the prophet Ezekiel, God says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, rather they would repent and live. And yet the same Hebrew verb he uses to describe Eli's sons when they were called upon to repent. It says God desired to put them to death. He doesn't desire the death of the wicked, rather they repent. But of those sons, same verb, he desired to put them to death because they were wicked. Same language used in Deuteronomy. I delight in blessing you. But if you rebel against me, I will delight in destroying you for my own glory. Okay? So God, there's a simplicity to God, but there's complexity sometimes when we talk about his different attributes. And so... God is not willing that those who come to Christ perish, that he has been patient. How many of you responded and trusted and believed and were born again the first time you ever heard a gospel message? See, if he had condemned you, if he had killed you, the moment you heard that first gospel message, the moment you rejected it, he said, well, that's your chance, that's it, you're done. How many of us would say that God has not been patient with us. Amen? God has been patient with us. He is not willing that any of us that he has chosen would fail to come to repentance. He is awaiting, and the day of his return seems to me will come when the last of those he has chosen hear the gospel, are born again, and believe that gospel. And then the trump will sound. Okay? So that's as much as I know about it, okay? And so we see here that God's patience is for us to, in a sense, prove out our repentance. It is the opportunity for us to proclaim the truth of the gospel. It is the opportunity for sinners to repent. It is our opportunity to be salt and light in the world and to do our good works before men so that they will glorify our Father who is in heaven to fulfill this great mandate of the Great Commission. And so God is patient. But there is a but. There is a but there in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
I assume that means. I don't. I, 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 thankfully, I've, I've never had somebody break into my home. People that have find it to be an incredibly devastating experience. That it is just, it is an awful sense. And so, the first thing we say about a thief is they're not welcome. That that the for the world, this day of the Lord is going to be an unwelcome event. It's going to be a shocking event. It's going to be a surprising event. It's going to be a sudden event that's going to come upon them. And Paul uses the same language there, that it's going to come upon them like a thief. And really, Jesus plays on the same imagery in, in terms of his uh, return. And so, this day of the Lord is a phrase that you find all the way back in the Old Testament, and it runs all the way through the New Testament. And it is a phrase that the prophets use to describe, in, in the simplest and broadest sense, the visitation of God. God present to do one of two things. Either to bless, maybe even by, to deliver, bless his people by delivering them from evil, or to curse his enemies. That's what the day of the Lord was and is in summary, okay? The Old Testament prophet spoke to it. You could say that in 586 B.C. there was a day of the Lord as, the, as Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. You could say that when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in 7 A.D., that was a day of the Lord that he visited to curse the Jews who had rejected him. And here's the good news for you. I don't know if you call it ultimate or penultimate. But the day, your day of the Lord, in terms of the wrath of God, was poured out on your Savior, Jesus Christ, at the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. Now, that's good news. And through that, as Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, he has delivered us from the wrath to come. That wrath, that day of the Lord, poured out on Jesus for all who would ever believe. Folks, that's good news. That is good news. And so this day of the Lord is going to come. I believe the, day, the, the, day, the ultimate day of the Lord is that in which Christ returns. He will raise the dead, and he will gather the living believers, the believers who remain... They will be gathered to him. There's your rapture, folks. There's your rapture, okay? And we in our mortal bodies, we, we start up in this falling apart body and we're gathered to him in a perfected body. And then we return to establish his kingdom here on earth. It's also associated with this fire and this destruction of everything that we know. And Again, I believe there'll be a I believe our eternity will be spent on a recreated on a perfected earth. This earth will be destroyed by fire and God will re recreate it in perfection and we will do what? We will dwell with him forever. That's why did God place Adam and Eve in the garden? To dwell among his people. And sin, the curse of sin, brought estrangement, alienation from God. And God could say, well, y'all have one chance. That's it. I'm done. You had a shot. 
You blew it. It's over. But God, but God who is rich in mercy, he had a plan. He had a plan about a lamb slain from the foundation of the world that he would deliver from the just wrath through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all the pictures in the Old Testament are of God dwelling among his people, a dwelling that in some sense was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Word was made flesh, and he dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory. But one day, one day, we as his people will dwell with him forever, and we will rejoice in, in beholding his glory. We will be completely, overwhelmingly joyful because, because sin, Satan, the grave, hell, none of those things could ever thwart the plan of God in redemption. Finally, just some application real quickly. Now, I think it's on my T-shirt. We don't say, I'm just lucky. We don't say, all you got to do is ask Jesus into your heart. And we don't say, amen. Who said that? There you go. Give, it, give that man a stuffed puppy on the way out. Don't tell me, I'm preacher. <laughs> I'm just waiting on the rapture. Our Lord is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is the head of a victorious army. And we're to live as victors. We're not to be hyper-speculative, this is that. We're not to be despairing. We're not quitters. And if your theology drives you or your eschatology makes you have the attitude that all we're doing is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, you have come up might be the right theology, but you got the wrong application, okay? Because we're to go into the world and to make disciples. We're a part of the church that the gates of hell shall not prevail against. I can't tell you how all of that works out, but we are to be a holy people, sober and alert, faithfully waiting the day of his return, the day that he does return as a thief in the night. We are waiting for the day that creation quits its groaning because it, along with us, have experienced the fullness of our redemption. Therefore, verse 4, what do we say? It's on my t-shirt, I think. Wherefore the therefore? Based on what I've said, here's how you need to think about it. Be diligent again. No slackers allowed. No flabby losers, okay? Be diligent. Be diligent. Be found in him without spot or blemish. Be a holy people. Be at peace with each other. Thank God for the patience of God that our salvation is working its way out in our lives. As difficult as these things are, we're to live lives characterized by hope. So knowing these things before him, verse 17, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people. Don't succumb to the, the gospel of the age, you'll lose your stability. Verse 18, but grow, but grow. Here's the thing I know about living things. I'm not much of a gardener, 
but living things grow. That's just their nature. They just grow. Believers grow in the grace and knowledge of their Savior, Jesus Christ. And to Him, it is to Him that we give all of the glory that all things, whether Hamas and the Jewish state, whether all of the issues between Russia and the Ukraine, all of the skullduggery going on in China, and on and on and on it goes. It is a part of the tapestry that our God is weaving. And through that tapestry, He will be glorified as His saints persevere through whatever He has determined to be the appropriate time and means and events to bring about His return when He will make all things right and all things new. So what kind of people should we be? A holy people living with joy and living in expectation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is your word for us. It is a word that is ever appropriate, ever relevant. Uh, there have been those in every age since you ascended into heaven uh, that uh, were paralyzed by the enormity of the reality that you would return. Uh, there have been those that have panicked uh, by this truth. But we should be calmed. We should find ourselves secure within the plan of our God. Uh, we make no boast that we've got it all figured out. We make no boast that it's all going to be easy. But we do boast in the accomplishment of our Savior. That He, the Good Shepherd, who knows all of His sheep and His sheep know Him, that we will hear His voice and we will follow Him until the day in which we see Him. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.